This is a case from the Shoyoroku, the Book of Equanimity. Yu Feng's Head and Tail. Introduction. Those with supernatural power and marvelous activity can't step in. Those who have forgotten externals and eliminated thoughts still can't lift up a foot. Let us say that sometimes there are the running dead and sometimes there are the sitting dead. How can they be made complete? The main case. Attention. A monk asked Zhu Feng, what is the head? Zhu Feng said, opening the eyes and not being aware of the dawn. The monk asked, what is the tail? Jiafeng said, not sitting on an eternal seat. The monk then asked, what about having the head and no tail? Jiafeng said, after all, it's not precious. The monk asked, what about having the tail and no head? Jiafeng said, Though satisfied, you are powerless. The monk asked, How about when the head and tail are directly well matched? Zhifeng replied, A descendant gains power without knowing it. The verse. A compass for the circle, a ruler for the square. With use, it functions well. With neglect, it hides. Stupid and bumbling, a bird dwelling in the reeds. Going back and forth, a sheep caught in a fence. Eating others' food, sleeping in one's own bed. Clouds rise and rain falls. Dew collects and turns to frost. The well-aligned jewel string passes through the needle's eye. The embroidered thread unceasingly vomits from the shuttle's guts. The stone woman stops weaving, and night's colors turn towards noon. A wooden man travels the road, and the moon's silhouette moves to half full. Beautiful poetry. So today marks the end of our three months ango. It's nice to have new people with us today for that. We need to be reminded of the fresh and the new once in a while so we don't fall into habits. Habits of thinking we know something. So Ango is a three-month period that is meant to, supposed to, help us deepen the understanding of what we call wisdom practice. As Dogen referred to it, enlightenment practice, which is another way to say actualizing the fundamental point. Of course, this is our task year-round, but during Ango, we, we bring an intention, a different kind of intensified intention to pay more attention, to be more alive, to examine our commitments to the practice, to push further. We do it because we know how difficult and challenging it is to stay on the path. We do it also because practice continues forever. And as it continues forever, we gotta take the time to deepen so we don't fall into assumptions of I know, of I have deepened enough, I understand. 
So, is three months enough? Is it too much time? You know, on one level, it is inexhaustible. Three months, three years, 10,000 years. We will never exhaust it. Even if we practice for a lifetime, with efforts, with determination, with tenacity, with discipline, we will die not exhausting it. It's just the nature of the unexhaustible. But on another level, a split second is more than enough to realize, to recognize, to get in touch with, to be one with. It's more than enough time to transcend our ego delusions. In fact, that's all it takes, one second. Of course, then comes the next second. It's all we need, one split second to tap into the vastness of the eternal flow. And then function freely at that moment, maybe at that second. Function freely in complete forgetfulness of past, of present, of future. Even of being in the moment. The moment falls away as well. Or another way to say that or to see that is that when the self falls away, all that is left is just this moment. And there's nobody there to quantify it and compare it to other moments. So it's pristine. It includes it all. It shines brightly. It's not lacking, it's not missing anything. And it's gradual, so three months are very important. It's gradual, it takes time, it takes continuous determination, and at the same time, it is sudden. At the same time. Now, because it is gradual, we need to keep refining the understanding. We need Ango. We need Sashins, Zazenkais. We need to do our best to remain focused, to remain clear. And also, we need to be kind with our own practice and don't get bogged down or discouraged when we get trapped. When we all get trapped. It's okay. It's part of the package deal of practice. And of course, because it is sudden, we have to trust, we have to bring into continuous, tedious practice that is, that can be very demanding at times. We need to bring a trust that what is realized through the gradual process has always been this way. We're not going from point A to point B. We're not going anywhere. It's happening. It's always been happening. Which means it does not grow or diminish. It cannot diminish. It cannot grow. When we say the understanding grows, we don't mean it grows. We just mean that we gradually open up the eye and see what has always been there. In the same way that science never invents anything, it discovers what's always been there, the way it's always been. But when science discovers something, of course, it's new. But it is not born at that moment. 
because it's timeless. And it's not based on our personal feelings and experiences. It's not based on our excitements. And we are, and we need to be excited when we get glimpses of realization, small ones, big ones. It is air-shattering. It is amazingly transformative. And it does change our lives, totally. It is beyond birth and death. But we cannot deny, of course, the enchanting beauty of a smiling baby or the grieving process of losing a loved one. We don't jump into eternal to run away from the passing moments, to run away from challenges, from difficulties, from pain, from joy, happiness. Those are not two. Now we hear it a lot in Teishos, we, we read it in our chants, books. We go through that in Koran study. So we encounter it over and over and over again, and we need to because we are very stubborn in our way of thinking, our way of being. Wisdom, and it's always been this way too, wisdom is only realized through determined, solitary practice. And then, after it is realized, it is actualized through the ebb and flow of everyday life, through the moments of happiness, moments of sadness, what we call the in-between. That's where it comes to life. That's the only way it can come to life. In the mud and the grime with everybody else. The clarity is found within obscurity, not outside of it. In fact, realization is opening up to, or the opening up to delusion what we call delusion. A few days ago, I was talking to somebody who hosted, I think for 10 days, uh, Indian Swami. It was a part of a series of seminars that this Swami gave in the country. He came from India. And uh, this guy I was talking to uh, hosted him and uh, he said he was amazed to see the level of service he had to give to this Swami, right? To, and the details, not so much that he had a problem with being of service, but the details it came down to. He had to buy, the guy was actually uh, hosted at his house uh, part of this time, and he had to buy brand new dishes, plates, forks, knives, spoons, cups, and to cook special food. Now, brand new dishes because this guy, this Swami is very, considered deeply realized, and uh, it's important, so he said, to not defile the purity of his realization by eating with plates that other people ate with and defiled unintentionally just because the rest of us may not be as uh, enlightened and our energy is not as pure. So this guy I was talking to, he's been practicing for a while, different tradition, he said it made him wonder and think about this separation, this gap between what this Swami represents and what 
or, or resides in as energy, and where, where we are, the rest of us. We are in the mud, and he is in the, he's in the clear. He's bathing in light. And it's not that, you know, of course, in our practice, uh, being of service to a teacher is extremely important and extremely vital part of practice. Service is the heart of Buddhism, being of service to others, especially to those who walk before us on the path, to those who are willing to devote themselves, devote their lives to guiding us, to teach us. So we have to be grateful, and we show that gratitude by serving. And in that serving, there's no, uh, there's no putting oneself down, and there's no elevating the other. In that serving, we lose ourselves. So there is no student, there is no service, and there is no teacher. In the same way that Bodhidharma talked about no giver, no gift, and no receiver. The triple emptiness. It's the same with service. So it's important, but of course in our tradition, the teacher shares the same mud and grime and highs and lows with everybody else. It's what the Buddha did through his life, throughout his life. He he lived within poverty with everybody else. He went begging for food with everybody else. He sat with everybody else. He cried and laughed with them. And he passed away in that same way. He died of dysentery by the side of the road. Like the rest of us. difference is that he was able to realize and embody purity within the mud and the grime, within what we often want to reject, deny, run away from, create displacement activities to not deal with. Not that it works, but we try. You know, it's always, we always hear, it's already happening, you're already there, you're already a Buddha. And it's a double-edged sword, because if I'm already a Buddha, why do anything? I'm good as I am, with my habits. But that's not the right understanding. The true realization of I'm already Buddha means I have tremendous responsibility. But we get lost, and we get lost, and we get lost further, and then we snap out at some point, and we wake up to realize we've created a lot of things that just get in our own way. writing this talk and I was I remember the story I forget who told me years ago somebody told me this story about uh, I think it's just a folk story about this uh, entrepreneur who travels and around the world and he reaches this uh, fisherman village somewhere in Asia and uh, he walks on the beach and he sees this uh, fisherman sitting on the, on the beach, looking at the ocean. And he sits next to him, and uh, he starts a conversation. So he asked the guy, he asked the fisherman, you know, what, what do you do here? He says, well, you know, I have a little boat, and he, he pointed at the boat, and I go out fishing once a day or so. I get some fish. I come back, I go to the market, I sell a few. I save a few to eat with my family, and that's it. And I live over there in this hut. So this guy, this entrepreneur, said, 
oh, well, you have a great opportunity. Why don't you work a little harder and so you can buy another boat? So you can have two boats. And then maybe put somebody on that boat that will go and do some fishing for you as well. So you can sell more fish in the market. So the guy said, okay, sounds good. But then what will I do? So, well, then, little by little, you have enough money to buy a third boat. So, oh, okay. What do I do with that boat? You, put, you hire somebody else. Put on that boat. And on and on. And then they come to a fleet of boats. And then uh, the guy's following. The fisherman is following everything, right? And he's... And then, okay, well, then what do I do when I have all these boats and then I have all these people I've hired and they all bring in many fish and I sell them in the market and I bought a big house and I'm no longer living in this shack. Then what? He says, then you can sit down and enjoy looking at the ocean. Then looks at him and says, well, thank you very much. I think I'll just stay here. It's kind of what we do, you know. We, we do a lot to come here. We do a lot to just realize that we are so wealthy and so rich and so, and there's so much to appreciate. But we create a lot in order to come back to square one. And to realize everything is, everything is contained therein. There is nothing missing. What I want, we do that also with our practice. We create ideas of what we think we are going to accumulate, arrive at, achieve. Only to, little by little, discover that we are already where we need to be. We are perfect. Nothing is ever lacking. Right? And when we realize that, when we truly realize that, and it does take time, we, can, we are free to direct our attention to continuously refine and deepen, but in a more leisure way, leisurely way, not in a, not a rigid way. And so when we look at Ango, We really look at Ango and we, to understand what, what the purpose of Ango is. While we are putting effort, right? There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of intention and energy that has to be put into the practice. And it is demanding. While we do all that, step by step, we know it's already happening. I'm already it. Nothing is ever lacking. I'm not going to arrive at any other place. And there's no negation. That's where it gets tricky. There's no negation. Form and formlessness are not in opposition. Although sometimes it feels this way. So then we can practice for the right reasons. Then we can live and take actions for the right reasons. Not for the sake of glorifying yourself or searching for some identity for our bruised egos. It's more like an art form sometimes. Practice is not really a a science as much as art form. It's open. It's free. It's in all directions. We have to just learn to ride it rather than create it. We need to trust the inner compass and obey it in the same way an artist would obey the inner impulse while holding a brush. It's not prescribed. But the one thing that artists do have is deep trust 
in something that cannot be understood through thinking, but can be felt through movement. And the more freedom we give the hand, the more it expresses itself. The more we make the hand confined, or the more we make the hand obey some ideas or thoughts, the less it expresses itself freely. I think, it was Paco, I, think I mentioned before at some point, Paco de Lucia, a famous guitarist, said that there's only a thin layer of skin separating between the heart and the string. And this is really the way to practice, to, to, to keep it open, to keep it free, to not dump our thoughts, expectations, ideas, concepts on the practice, but to allow it to move freely while we are staying on the path in a steadfast way, while we are extremely, actually, and we have to be extremely disciplined, but it's not in a rigid way, in an open way, in a loving, in a kind way, in an inviting and embracing way for everybody else that may not be practicing. We're practicing for them, we're practicing with them. The introduction to this koan says, sometimes there are the running dead and sometimes there are the sitting dead. Now we can't, we can't be as dead considered as dead, while going to work, raising a family, paying the bills. You know, the blood may be flowing through our veins, but we may be eating and defecating on a regular basis. But we may be so consumed and so blinded by worry and anxiety that while we are walking around, we are as dead, numb, not engaged not open to what is. The running dead. Also, we may be devoted practitioners who had some experiences of realization and then remain seated and die on the cushion, on a stale cushion, thinking we got somewhere, we got something. Right? And, and this is where sitting won't do, meditation won't do, and avoiding meditation won't do either. It's not enough to sit, and it's not enough, definitely not enough to avoid it. We can die sitting, we can die walking around. It's both at the same time. It's sitting while sitting and walking while walking. And then forgetting sitting while sitting and forgetting walking while walking. And then allowing both to come together and trust, like an artist, trust that it's happening already. We don't sit to become enlightened. We don't go to work to pay the bills. So the monk here began this conversation by asking, what is the head? Zhifeng said, opening the eyes and not being aware of the dawn. And the footnote says, the light doesn't go beyond the door. So maybe we have moments of clarity in Zazen experience, right? Or through our Zazen experience. Right? We realize and we see how the, the walls in the mind fall away. And we get a glimpse of freedom or what it feels like. And then the next day comes. We encounter a challenging situation at home, at work, and feel completely trapped again. 
can't seem to find a way to bring yesterday's realization to today's challenge. So maybe we want to go back to that. This is when the light doesn't reach beyond the Zafu. We are like sitting dead in the midst of the Absolute. What we experience is, or may be, real. Maybe real Kensho, glimpses of Kensho. And we can die there too. So the monk asked, what is the tale? Zhifeng said, not sitting on an eternal seat. Now the head, here the head is another way to refer to the absolute or realization of the absolute. But what about the tail? What is that standing for? Tails are very interesting, fascinating extensions of the body. Too bad we lost them. I think we could have been... I can think of many times it'd be good to have a tail. But think, look at animals, how they use their tails, you know, for, for balance, for grasping, to ward off flies, to defend themselves against predators, swimming, right, for communication also at times. When in essence, the tails are used for functioning, for everyday life functioning, for survival, sustaining oneself. But when the attention is in the head, can we even use the tail? You know, we may bump into things. The tail may bump into things because we're not even aware of it. And we, we do have tails. They don't look the same as a as monkey or a cat. But we have tails. So when we pay attention to the tail, we forget to pay attention to the head. We pay attention to the head, we forget to pay attention to the tail. And then we end up jumping from cushion to life, from life to cushion. Feeling like we found some sanctuary only to have it taken away from us. Blink of an eye. Whether it's in motion or in static, it doesn't matter. So the monk asked after that, what about having the, the head and no tail? And Feng said, after all, it's not precious. Now before we, before we have, before we really have some deep experience of realization, there is a sense of being on a path that leads to a hidden and extremely precious treasure that can only be exposed through diligent and sustained practice. And it's partially true because unless we are sustaining disciplined practice, it will not be revealed to us. It is revealed, but we will not partake. So we can live an entire lifetime in, in, in a cave, or in the cave of demons, as it is sometimes referred to uh, in, in koans. But after we go through process of awakening, or processes of awakening, we begin to understand that the preciousness of realization comes to life when it is actualized, only actually, when it's actualized and shared with others through everyday life. What makes it pressure, precious is the life of it, more so than the realization of it. Although the realization of it is quite an amazing experience. But very quickly it becomes a worthless experience. And as he says, it's not so precious. After all, you could be sitting for 5, 10, 20, 30 years and then all of a sudden you realize and it's air shattering. But then 
very quickly realized that that's another good experience that I can file with my other things that I file. And remember that as a good memory. But what do I do with it? In other words, where is the head in the tail? And then, where is the tail in the head? You know, the treasure of awakening shines brightly in what we call mundane activities. With everybody else using the same plates. And without taking a step from realization to actualization, it, or the itness of it, is not so precious at all. Of course, this is an important point that is brought up quite often in Cohen study. There's another example. The monk asked uh, Hugu, when a crane stands upon a withered pine, then what? Actually, this is referred to a white crane on a withered pine. Now, this is uh, another way to refer to deep state of realization. That all thoughts are, have been exhausted. A withered pine. When the mind dries up and withered, withers. And a rare crane stands upon it on it, then what? So the answer was, on the ground below, it's a shame. On the ground below, it's a shame. Why? Because this is where everybody else is. Because this is where life happens. This is where it matters. This is where the white crane needs to get its feathers dirty. And that's where it shines. This is it's, uh, it's a very interesting practice because, in a way, in a way, we create a life that goes against it. And even when we have some realization, some understanding. And we feel so, we feel like we want to share it with the world. When you try to share it with the world, you realize it is not interested. It really is not interested. And I think we can look at our own uh, personal experiences and we know that if we've been in the practice for a while, we can remember times that we actually rejected the practice. And we may also reject it once in a while ourselves. This reminds me of a story Terry Dobson, who was an American practitioner, Aikido practitioner, who studied with O-Sensei, the founder of Aikido, for about nine years, ten years in Japan. And when O-Sensei died, he came to the U.S. and he felt... He loved the practice. He felt like this is an amazing thing that I can share with everybody else. And he wanted to share with everybody else. And he came to this country and he realized that nobody's interested. And then he said, I, I realized I have an answer to a question nobody's asking. It's a very interesting way to say that. I have an answer to a question nobody's asking. And we experience that with the practice, with ourselves too. Sometimes I think that uh, liturgy seems like an answer to a question we're not asking. Why do I have to do that? I'm not that interested. What is it going to do for me? And we don't know what he's doing. We don't know. There's no way we can know. I can tell you from personal experience, experiences. There's no way I would, years ago, I would not imagine, I could not imagine 
how transformative the practice will be for me. What I will experience through the practice. But I did know to trust something. I did know to listen to an inner compass. And that was enough. That is enough. That's all that's needed. To trust. Inner compass. To trust. I'm already there although I'm blind to it. I'm already there. The monk then asked, what about having the tail and no head? Zhu Feng said, though satisfied, you are powerless. Now, this is, this is important because it refers to the vital significance of satori or realization in Zen training. We can't say there's no such thing as enlightenment. Because that will not be true. But we also can't say that enlightenment is something to strive for or seek. Because this will also, this cannot be true. Because we're not seeking for something that is not happening. We are deepening an experience of what is already happening. We recognize what is. You know, and strong and dedicated practice without realization is not going to embody the essence of Zen. And gradually it will lead to a watered down version of Zen. And I think it's happening at some places. I mean, it can happen here too. We can follow the forms, use the words. Bring up quotes, but it won't amount to much other than some sounds. Maybe it looked like Zen. You know, in some literature, this state is called idiot compassion. You act like a compassionate person, you follow the script. But there's nothing behind it. There's no understanding. There's no realization behind it. Looks like it. But that's all. As Zhifeng says, though satisfied, you are powerless. It feels good. It feels like you're doing the right thing. But he has no power. Right? Because if, we're not, if we cannot free ourselves, how do you free others? How do we free others? We don't see. We don't open the eye. Hence, the blind leading the blind. So the monk then asks one more question. How about when the head and the tail are, are directly well matched? Zhifeng replied, a descendant gains power without knowing it. You know, Dogen said, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not need to know or to be aware of being Buddhas. This extra awareness is actually taking you away, taking us away from actualizing Buddhahood. There's no need to know when the head and the tail are one, or are seen or recognized as one, then the whole body is forgotten. Everything in between is forgotten. And whatever we do, whatever we say, is already an expression of it. Without the extra. And without the need for it to look a certain way, to sound a certain way. It's already happening. And there's nothing so special about being who you are, about being human. What's so special about that? And you know, and that's exactly what makes it so special and so precious. It's exactly what makes us so special. 
to realize that we are nobody. We are nothing special. Or we are as special as everybody else. That works too. It doesn't work for the ego, but it works in reality. You know, for the ego, probably be, well, if everybody's special, I would like to be not so special. Because I don't want to be like everybody else. But we don't have a choice there. We are everybody else. That's the given, and that's what we realize. That's not up to us. But it's up to us to realize it. Now, when the head and the tail are forgotten, the head does what it needs to do, and the tail does what it needs to do. Right? Because there is a head and there is a tail. You can't deny that either. Zhuang Tzu said, if the goat would know it's a goat, its legs would bump into one another and it would not be able to walk. If the fish knew it's a fish, it would sink into the bottom of the river. And he said, the goat, the fish, the mountain, the river, know themselves in a knowledge that does not know. Only humans try to know themselves through knowledge that knows. And that's why they cannot be human in the same way that a goat is a goat, a fish is a fish, a river is a river, and a mountain is a mountain. The knowledge that does not know itself. Now, Zhefeng, Dogen, and Zhuang Tzu all are referring to a very high state of realization where one lives in complete accordance with surroundings or surrounding reality. Right? This means to function without leaving any traces, regardless of circumstances and conditions. It's a, it's a high state, a rare state of Buddhahood. Not so easy to bring that together to, to, to such a state. Actually, rare. I don't know whether we will experience this or not. And it doesn't really matter. Because as practitioners, our job is just to commit to keep refining while dealing with, the, with persistent habits of creating a self and leaving traces. This is the habit. We create a self and that self leaves behind traces. And this is what we keep refining. Not creating a self so we don't leave behind any traces. And that, as Dogen said, continues forever. That doesn't change. Or it doesn't stop changing. You know, Shi Shuang uh, was uh, Zhefeng's teacher, was also asked similar questions by his community. So when he was asked, what is the head? He replied, you should know that it exists. You should trust that. There is such thing as realization. There is awakening. There is itness. Just trust that. Then he was asked, what is the tale? He said, exhausting the present, which is what we do on the cushion. We do in our practice. We exhaust this. We exhaust the thoughts about this. We exhaust it all. So nothing remains. We penetrate, penetrate through every thought, every feeling, every sensation, every conception, perception. We become aware of thoughts and feelings without becoming identified with them. What we exhaust through that is the self that wants to grasp, that wants to hold on to, that wants to create an image of. That's what we exhaust. And we do it now. To exhaust the present is to exhaust what arises and vanishes in this moment. Including the resistance to the practice, which also arises in the moment, like any other thought. 
And then he was asked, what happens if there is, no head, there is the head and no tail? And he said, Shishuang said, what's the use of spitting out gold? What's the use of... Gold dust may be considered very expensive or maybe very expensive, but when you spit it out at somebody in the eyes, it'll be very irritating to the eye, right? Whether it's dust that costs nothing or gold that costs a lot, it won't matter. Both will prevent you from seeing clearly. If mundane is seen as mundane, it'll block the eyes. If realization is seen as realization, it blocks the eyes. Then he was asked, how is it, how is it, if there is the tail and no head? He said, Shishuang said, that there is still dependence in that state, of course, they're still clinging to a name, a title, to one's life, life's ups and downs, to Zen practice, which can be the same. It doesn't really matter. There is still attachment. There's still clinging. Clinging doesn't go away because we choose to become practitioners. It just changes what it clings to. But the habit of clinging doesn't go away. So we can look like practitioners, but we can be still clinging, still stupid, or acting in stupid ways. And then, of course, he was asked the last question, how is it when the head and the tail are well matched? And Shishuang said, even if he does understand this, even if he does understand this, I don't yet approve of him. If he understands this, if he understands this, there is still something left to understand. Throw it out. Where does this question come from? Who is asking? Who wants to know? What needs to be clarified? There's still a question. There's still a questionnaire. There's still the pondering. The trust is not yet full. There is something that has not yet been forgotten completely. You know, the head and tail, of course, are made up, brought up as upaya, skillful means. And they're brought up so we can practice with some sense of direction or having signposts. But in reality, no one jumps between the head and the tail, between realization and actualization. Realization is actualization. Actualization is realization. That's where it happens. There's a verse. I don't know if we have time for that, but I'll try a little bit to touch on it. The verse says, a compass for a circle, a ruler for a square. When Dogen went to China for five years, he was already, of course, uh, deeply in the practice. He went to China because he wanted to understand, if I'm already a Buddha, why do I have to bother practicing? And then he came back, and they asked him, what have you realized? He said, eyes are horizontal, nose is vertical. That's what he said. But he didn't just say it, he realized it. So he was able to live in forgetfulness of being. No head, no tail, justice. Eyes are horizontal, contains it all. Nose is vertical, contains it all. But well, we want more than that. It's too simple. And then it says in the verse, with use, it, it functions well. With neglect, it hides. 
That's all it is, just the way we use it, the way it comes to life, the way realization manifests through our actions. Through our actions. The Buddha said, my actions are the ground upon which I stand. The absolute manifest in the relative, only in the relative. Because the absolute is relative. It says, stupid and bumbling, a bird dwelling in the reeds. Going back and forth, a sheep caught in a fence. And, you know, we are the sheep caught in a fence. Now we, we dwell in either the absolute or the relative. But we function neither in the absolute nor in the relative. Because we are stuck in that fence that we make up. Where is the line between the absolute and the relative anyway? Have you ever tried to look for it? Try that. Look for where you end and the absolute begins. Where do you find the absolute? Where do you encounter it? Where is it? Where is it not? Eating other people's, others' food, sleeping in one's own bed. Clouds rise and rain falls. Dew collects and turns to frost. Are we using our own power? Do we trust it? Are we using power we make up that we have to keep generating by thinking about it? You know, the self is, is very high maintenance. It creates... We create it, but we have to keep creating it. The moment your thoughts subside, all thoughts subside, you're not there. In fact, the self needs the thoughts to stay alive. Without the thoughts, it dies. That's why we freak out often when we see it in Zazen and there are no thoughts. And then we rush to create something to think about because I'm not there. Body and mind drop away. Then we realize there is no self. There is no separate existence. There's nothing I can call me except for the actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. My actions are my only true belongings. That is true. The self is not. The well-aligned jeweled string passes through the needle's eye. The embroidered thread unceasingly vomits from the shuttle's guts. Stone woman stops weaving, and night colors, night's colors turn towards noon. Wooden man travels the road, and the moon's silhouette moves to half full. Now, it's another way to say that the canvas of reality is perfectly woven with horizontal fibers and vertical fibers, and the inherent beauty of the fabric comes to life in the way the absolute and the relative merge. It's all around us. It's happening all the time. It's always been happening. But do we see it? Do we partake? If we look for it for the, with the eyes, we are as if blind. If we listen for it with the ear, we are as if deaf. So what do we do? What do we do? We can't turn towards it. We can't turn away from it. My Zumi Rosh used to say, you're doing it anyway, so you might as well appreciate it. It's very nice, right? You're doing it anyway. And we chant, this is the pure land. And it is up to us to make it so. Well, you're doing it anyway. It is this. And you are a Buddha. Whether or not you realize it. 
So that you're doing it anyway is another way to, of saying this is already the pure land, right? This is it. And you are already a temporal manifestation of the eternal. There's no question there. Well, we may question, but there's no question. Right? We are already a complete and perfect integration of the relative and the absolute. Now, the second part of this, what he said, is you might as well, you might as well appreciate it. This is where, this is the most important part of this, of what he said. This is where the fork in the road is. This is where it's up to us to make it so, is. When we, play, when we pay close attention and we take the time to truly appreciate the abundance of life that is surrounding us, we actually can exp experience contentment with things as they are. Because we know, we recognize, it is inherently perfect. There's no question there. But there is a question in how do I bring it to life? How do I manifest it? That's where it's up to us to make it so is. Right? Because when we realize that, then there is, we do experience contentment in all four seasons. And we can be at ease in almost all circumstances. It does happen, actually. And when we do feel content and grateful, the sense of lack and dissatisfaction disappear. Because there's no question. Right? And so much of our practice is actually focused on, on that, on reverence and appreciation. From the way we walk into the Zendo, the way we bow, the way we connect with each other. There's a lot of reverence, there's a lot of appreciation too. Life as it is. And appreciation is a very interesting practice because when you take the time to appreciate, then life comes to life. Then you can, and be, because at that point, being present is not even in question. You can't appreciate unless you're present. So don't worry about being present. Just appreciate. That's all. Appreciate, but not what you want. Appreciate what is. Right? That's a different challenge, especially these days. Because what is, is not what we wanted, well, many of us. It's true that many of us actually are very happy with what is these days, but whether what is, is what we want or don't want, is actually irrelevant. We still need to appreciate, and what we need to appreciate, what we need to practice is actually unity in the midst of this craziness. I mean, the only, it's the only peaceful way to deal with rising racial discrimination, bigotry, misogyny. It's the only way. It's the only antidote to appreciate what is uniting us as human beings. And that's, it's up to us to make it so. That's where it's at. How do we do it? Not whether or not I am it. Not pondering lack. Not catering to the insecurities. No. There's no need to go there. It's done. As we say often, the meal has long been cooked. You're done. You're perfect. As is. Everyone is even if they don't agree with what you think, even if their ideologies are diametrically opposing whatever you believe, whatever we believe. It's beyond right and wrong. But it does not reject what we see as right and what we see as we should not be doing. Because we have to bring the realization into the actualization. We have to see it in the way we act. And when it's time to stand up and speak, we stand up and speak. 
Some people think that Buddhism is not about standing up and saying. It's not about making, making sure that others are heard or we are heard. Some people think it's passive, and it's not. It's the other way around. It's as realistic as could be. Because we open up to it all. The joy and the suffering. It's one. So as we wrap up this ango, I think that sometimes ango is an attempt. You know, we, we go through three months of ango and then we look back and we ask, did I really do what I said I will do? I mean, I, I didn't, I was honest when I got up in front of the Aishiki and read my commitments to everybody. I felt uh, empowered at that moment. And then the next day and the next day and the next week and the week after, of course, something happens. The tail takes over. The tail is wrapped around the head. Right? So then we have to disentangle the tail from the head. And we have to practice. Practice realization. Actualize realization. Yeah, there's always another ango coming up. But this is it's important to, to end an ango with a renewed commitment rather than wait for the second round, for the next round. Now is the time to learn from it, to learn from what I did do, to learn from what I did not do. And then forget the tail, forget the head, and take my Zoomi's advice. Appreciate. <laughs> 